Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question with Will and Dan. This week the boys speak to musician Dunstan Bruce of Chumbawamba. Should explain to the listeners that we've gone slightly off the entrepreneur rails this week and decided to interview Dunstan Bruce, who was the lead singer of 1990s pop sensation Chumbawamba. You may know them through their because of their song Tub Thumping. Tub Thumping, that's it. Yeah. Tub Thumping. And uh, yeah, it's a band and a song that's supposed to dance heart because. It features the lyrics, oh, Danny boy. Yeah, it was also the um, the song that was played to the first dance at my wedding. Yes. I'm not sure on when this episode is going to be released, so I've put it in the past tense. <laughs> it also locks it in for Eleanor. Now I've said that, it has to be. It's on the record. Yeah. yeah. And um, to be fair, yeah, uh, the reason we, the reason I think, I think I thought it'd be interesting is because uh, building up a band must be quite similar to building up a business. Dan, as an entrepreneur, what would you say to that? Well, I've never built up a band. band. No. Um, you do play the French horn. You'll have to mention that. Yeah, I played French horn as a child after cheating on a, a music test. I don't know how relevant that is to the kind of pop success that Dunstan Bruce has had there. I would say probably not very. Okay. I hope you have lots of questions today, Dan, because... I'm not feeling too inspired. I'm just going to get a biscuit. Uh, okay. <laughs> wait, wait, before you go. No. Damn it. Where are you from originally? Uh, the northeast of England, a place called Billingham, which is a, a sort of a new industrial new town that uh, really sort of only exists because there was an ICI chemicals work there and everybody was employed. Well, a lot of the population were employed to work at the uh, the ICI chemical works. So it was a it was a town that sort of grew out of uh, out of that. Yeah. Um, and what was your childhood like? Um, I was, um, my dad was a fireman and my mum was a housewife and, uh, I went to, um, uh, you know, comprehensive school. Um, and, uh, where, where I live actually, where I lived, Billingham, it did have a reputation for having, um, the least number of, uh, books, or records, I think, in in the, in a in a house, um, and it was like that. It was like that in our house as well. I had very little, um, you know. I had to go and find everything myself. I had to find, you know, um, culture and ideas. And um, luckily, because I was, I grew up in the sixties uh, and seventies. Um, punk came along you know, in the mid, mid, mid 70s. And that sort of changed everything. That sort of the, 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 the doors were blown off at that point uh, for me. 
and everything changed. It was like year zero, and yeah. everything changed from that point on. Um, mm. And that was so. That was uh, uh, you know I had an interest in music in the in the in the early seventies. You know, I was um, um, I think the first records I bought were probably a Slade album, a David Bowie album, and an Elton John album or something like that. Oh, and an Alice Cooper album, School's mm. Out. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was listening to, uh, but you know, I was listening to to a lot of, um, you know, um, prog rock and stuff like that. Probably, and when punk yeah. happens, that just sort of, uh, that's sort of, that sort of changed my world because. Yeah. So, how did you like, make the transformation from music fan into um, musician? Well, I suppose one of the one of the sort of the main the main uh, philosophies of punk for me was that anybody could do it. Um, anybody could be a musician. It changed that sort of whole dynamic between uh, performer and audience and it, it made it all a lot more accessible and you didn't have to be um uh, as good a guitarist as jimmy page to be in a band um so that made it that made a huge difference to everybody's approach to music and uh, performing and um so when i when i still lived in when i still lived in uh, in billingham i was in a few you know very small and successful bands but then when i moved to leeds i immediately wanted to form a band uh, with people there and that's how I met other people uh, in Chumbawamba, was via uh, putting an advert in a record shop. And uh, Boff answered that advert. He had a band, I had a band, I joined his band, his band was Chumbawamba. Hmm. That was basically it. Um, yeah. And we were sort of inspired by uh, bands like, uh, they were, uh, Boff and Dan were from Burnley, which is near Manchester in the Northwest. They were massive Fall fans. So, um, um, my, I was, uh, I was into bands like Wire and put in the pop group and stuff like that. So we, we were sort of, we started off from a position of like sort of left to centre and uh, um, feeling as though uh, anybody, anybody could create music. We, we sort of very much felt as though it wasn't uh, something that was uh, out of our reach. And we had loads of ideas of what we wanted to do. And when we first started off, we used to all swap instruments every song, and it was a complete and utter palaver. And um, it just grew from. Were you, were you doing other work uh, alongside it to begin with? Um, was it your full job? Or when in the, it, when in the it 80s, this job? is the early 80s. Um, you could squat still. Mm. We found this huge house in uh, West Leeds um, that was uh, abandoned, and we moved into it together. Um, and uh, that ended up about eight or nine of us all living in this house together. Uh, in those days, you could sign on, or you could do something called the Enterprise Loan Scheme, and it was all—it was finding different ways. You know, you could find the cracks in the system, sort of thing, and find ways of existing, whereby it wasn't necessary for you to uh, go out and get a job at that point. Uh, quite, a f- quite a few of us were university dropouts as well. Um, were you a university dropout? I was, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. did you go, and when did you? How long? I went you- to Leeds. That's how. I, that's why I went to Leeds initially. Was I went to do uh, architecture? Yeah. At, uh, at what was Leeds Polytechnic? Um, uh, I wanted to go to Leeds because there was bands like the Mekons and Gang of Four that were from Leeds, and I was really into what they were doing and what they were saying. Um, so I was attracted to Leeds because of that, mm. um, but that was and, just um, so, yeah. And so, so how how did you um, 
build the the band how how did the band build up into something that um presumably at some stage it became something that you could make a an okay living from yeah eventually yeah i mean not in the 80s though not not so Mm. much in the 80s in the 80s we i mean in the 80s we used to do lots and lots of benefit gigs lots of benefit gigs um and we'd we because we lived communally um we used to pool all our resources so all our money went in we shared money you know and and used and 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 had a common goal between us, you know, like we completely believed in what we were doing as a, as a band and politically, you know, we were involved in a lot of, uh, you know, anarchist actions. And then the miners strike came along in 84 and we got heavily involved in the miners strike and that led on to other things, but we were always doing, we were, we were sort of, as a band, we were building on, we were building a, a, a sort of a fan base or audience because we, we were playing benefit gigs all the, all the time, all around the country. And that just grew and grew and grew, really. And then we started going to Europe and playing over there. Um, when was that? Uh, about 86. Yeah. 86, 87, maybe we started going over to uh, the continent where we discovered there was this whole world of, um, you know, social centres and uh, government-funded places and squats all over, all over, you know, Germany and Holland and Austria and Switzerland uh, and Italy, you know, and we'd go and play at all these social centres or all these squats, and we would. So we would. There was a whole network, you know, that we were involved in that, and then that network got wider and wider and wider. And we even went to like, you know, we played in Poland, places in, in the east, in the east of Europe, where, um, you know, bands just didn't go there, you know, and it, it was it was amazing. It was completely um, a, a culture shock. And uh, but it was incredible. It was just incredible going there. Um, and so we just built up a following over the years, and then that just grew and grew and grew. And we were like, we had our own record label, and then we signed to a, an independent label after that. Uh, as we, as we sort of grew in size and that, um, and it just so it just grew from that really. It was very, it was very uh, DIY. It was completely DIY how we were doing it in those early days. We were sort of fiercely independent um, and wanted to control all, you know, all aspects of, uh, you know, what we did. So we all had jobs within the band, you know, so you weren't just a musician in the band. You were a tour manager or you were, uh, you designed the record sleeves or you produced the records or you wrote the lyrics, or you wrote the music, or or you organised the you know you organised the tours, or you looked after the you know the finances and stuff like that. We all had different jobs within the band. Mm. It's really interesting how much it's not just about the music, but the politics and the way of living and the the mission that you're on. How much do you think the the band was kind of a product of that time and a place? You know, if you were to get together with the same people now in in Brighton in 2021, would it be a, a totally different sound? Um, I think it's that that's spot on what you said, really, basically, is that um, we were really politically motivated um, and our outlet for our politics was our was the music in a way. And I think I think what we always we I mean, we'd go on demonstrations, we'd go on actions you know, we do. We were doing a lot of illegal stuff, stuff at the same time, but we were also um, using the band as a way of uh, meeting and, and 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 being part of a bigger community of political activists 
and that felt like at that time in the eighties that that's what gigs in our in our in our social circle were about. They were about people coming together, and it was about the everybody's ideas and everybody's um, you know wanting to change the world or what you know whatever our aims were at that time, and that was. That, so that was always a really important um, collective experience going to a gig. Um, we were sort of, in the early days, we were really heavily influenced by Crass, who were like a, a anarchist collective from down south. And they, their gigs were amazing events. I was never necessarily a massive fan of the music, but the way that they brought people together and disseminated propaganda and shared ideas and broke down that barrier between band and audience. It was, uh, it was really inspiring at the time. How did you get to the, um, how did you jump from, um, you know, as you say, living in a squat in Leeds, and obviously it took, took several years, but, but then to, to get to the, as you call it, the Chumbawamba era. Um, and at that stage, um, was that after you'd signed a, with, a, with a different record label? Or what was the, what, what happened there exactly? Yeah, what, what happened was that we'd, um, we'd written the album that was uh, was to become Tub Thumper, and um, we were on a we were on a record we were on an independent record label called One Little Indian at the time. And when we took that album to them, uh, they said it wasn't good enough. They didn't like it. They said we had to either go away and re-record something, or they would get some uh, producers in to produce it for us to turn it into something else. And we just we were really believed in that album. Because uh, prior to that album, we were sort of we were sort of struggling a little bit. We were on a point where it was: Are we going to let this fizzle out, or are we going to, you know, pull together and do something new and different? And we decided that we should uh, have one last. It was like sort of having one last go at, um, at um, keeping the band together. Because we were sort of it, it got a bit fragile for a while, and. Um, and so when we took that album to One Little Indian and they said they didn't want it, we said, all right, well, we're just going to leave because we really believe in it and we're not going to do what you want us to do. So we left. And so that meant that we had no record label anymore. Um, and we had no way, we, at that point, we had no way of putting out the album. So we found, um, we had some friends, some old friends who, were, uh, who used to manage, um, actually, they used to manage Hawkwind and... Uh, Prior to that, Motorhead and Girls School, I think. They so they were like a real sort of rock. They yeah. were this rock, rock and real rock and roll couple. It were, they were really lovely, and they were they knew the business really, really well. They were older than us, um, and they said that they would um, help us get a record deal, and they did. They helped us get a record deal. If they found ways of getting the, uh, you know, like this, a, a few songs off the album out, and but this buzz started. Around that, around that song, you know, people started latching onto it, um, and it, yeah, what was that like at the time? Um, it was strange. It was really weird. It was completely weird because we'd started playing smaller gigs prior to that, and thought that you know things were coming to an end, and then we'd uh, we wrote this song that suddenly people at uh, you know at various record labels and and at radio stations and stuff like that were saying this song's amazing this song's going to be a hit you know you've got to put the song out as the single it's got to be this one because it's it's uh... and we Is hadn't set favorite? out so we hadn't set out to write a hit single or anything we just like yeah. set out was it your favorite song did you did it stand out to you um not 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 necessarily no no 
it was just that what happened was that we were playing the song live before we were before we put the album out we finished the you know we so we were performing them songs and people were coming up to us at gigs going that song's fucking brilliant that should be the single and we were like oh all right then and um so it sort of just grew out of that really just sort of people like say you know like advising us that maybe that one is the one that should be the single How much money do you make from um, did you make from that period, roughly as a band overall? Um, I always think that we saw we ended up selling about six or seven million albums, um, and I always calculate that it's a quid an album that we made. I don't know if that's that's what I've always based it on. I've done if that's about six seven million pounds. Yeah. <laughs> you sound very mean, uncertain. That, I've got there. to say that doesn't mean that you immediately become a millionaire because we didn't. But yeah, it why not? Mean, it does mean <laughs> we, we we did we did. We I suppose there are I suppose right. there are eight of you and there's the ten percent. So yeah, so ten percent goes at first, and then there's yeah. then there's eight of us. But then there's ta- you know you get taxed on that as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Was it was it life changing for you? Yeah, yeah, it was. You, yeah, it was totally yeah. life changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we'd all we'd all, up until that point, you know, we'd been going for fifteen years as a band. And we had in the previous, I don't know, say three or four years or before that, we 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 were doing the band as a full time job, but we were making, but we were all making like fifty quid a week or something, you know. That's all we could afford to pay ourselves, and it was only because of uh, our various living circumstances or the other people who we were living with, who who were maybe you know not in the band, who were maybe earning more money than that, that we could uh, that we could function as a you know as a working band it wasn't just a uk massive hit it became a global hit i suppose didn't it yeah well the, but the, i mean it was a massive hit in canada as well actually yeah we went like triple or quadruple platinum in canada yeah it's pretty incredible isn't it like yeah. that's that you know that song is so well known now it still crops yeah. up all the time on different I, I hear it on different tv programs all the time yeah yeah still do is. you um do you still uh how, how does the the financial side of that work now do you still do you still benefit every time it's played yeah yeah you still sign new publishing deals every five or seven years or something like that Mm. i have been really really fortunate in that it has enabled me to um live a creative life pretty much pretty much on you know by my own you know rules and desires i suppose you could say because um, that we still benefit from, you know, that song. Yeah. We do, you publishing resent, do you resent the fact that um, that I suppose you'd be considered a, a Chumbawamba would be considered a one-hit wonder? Oh no, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. No. Oh God, no. I mean, Good. most people are not <laughs> hit wonders, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I, I haven't had a single hit so far. Yeah. <laughs> I have. So. I don't know. And I, it's and I, it's and interesting though that that same thing has come up with quite a few of the um, business people we've spoken to. If they're really well known for one thing, 
um they're obviously glad that they had that one thing but then some of them have been always trying to top it and top it and it's sometimes it's just everything came together you just can't recreate that have you ever tried to sort of go well we can dissect what happened there and do it again and we we did try and do it we did try and do it so yeah um we wrote we wrote a song for the 1998 world cup we got asked to do it. Oh, I listened to that. Um, couple. I think I listened to it last week as I was preparing for this interview, actually. The I really liked the it. Worlds. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. So that was an attempt to kind of write a song that's the same formula as, 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 um, as Tub Thumping. And it left us all feeling really dirty. It was, mm. it was really, it was not nice. It was not a good experience, really. It just didn't feel good. I just thought, what are we doing? We don't, this isn't how we want to develop as a band. This is just trying, this is just getting a bit trapped within a, you know, um, you know, within a, within a, a cycle of you know, trying to recreate what we, what we'd already done. And so the album we ended up making after the Tub Thumper album was absolutely nothing like the Tub Thumper album. Mm. So you could say that we shot ourselves deliberately in the foot, if you like. So we make a living from that song still, eight of us, you know. Whenever you hear it on the radio, do you sort of go, yes? <laughs> no, no, no. But I do really like it when somebody texts me and says, ah, I've just heard your song on, you know, um, I don't know, first dates or something, or, or little fires everywhere. You've got to watch it. Your song's in it. Firefly. Yeah, it is on little fires everywhere, isn't it? I watched that, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll email you next time I hear it as well, just to. <laughs> I like it. I really like it. I, th- yeah. I just like the idea that it's still part of popular, that it's become part of popular culture, and yeah. I think that was always something that we really wanted to 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 be is you know is part of popular culture, and I mm. think you know, and I think if that one song enabled us to do a lot of other things, then I think that's a I think that's a a great thing and I would rather it happen to the eight people in Chumbawamba than to a lot of other people I suppose. Well uh, Dunstan I was a bit embarrassed to say this but I will now you've um, you've said that so um, it's actually one of my personal real favourite songs and I've managed to get my fiance to um, allow us to have it as a song for our first dance so uh, yeah I wouldn't have said that normally because I thought it was quite a creepy thing to say but now you said that comment I feel a bit safe. You know what people have had it at funerals Really, which wow. I think's weird. About yeah, we <laughs> yeah we played that song at, at uh, you know at some of these. Yeah. Quick fire round of questions. Uh, do you prefer tea or coffee? Oh god, coffee. Why did uh, you go? Oh god, just <laughs> one of them sort of quick fire things. Which <laughs> <laughs> I always swore I would never do. <laughs> Don't worry, the rest the rest should be slightly more original, Dan. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be um, not going to be a fan of either but Boris Johnson or Donald Trump oh yeah that's just ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> what's your favourite song oh that changes day by day of course it changes day by day um, I was listening to um, Big Mama Thornton singing Hound Dog this morning actually which is absolutely incredible so today that is my favourite song uh, do you have a favourite business? A favourite business? Or brand, I suppose. Brand? Oh, fuck. I do wear a lot of Fred Perry. Okay. Shit. Yeah. 
<laughs> what you just made a documentary about Chumbawamba. You did? Yeah. And I wear Doc oh. Martens and Fred Perry's all the way through it, and I just kept on thinking I should get sponsorship for this. So have you been doing that? Is that is that your Dandy Films email? Is that is that he's on it through? Uh, yeah, uh, no, not really. I've done it with a with a with a, a, a co-director called Sophie Robinson, who has a company called So and So Pictures. Mm. Yeah, we've been that out? Five years. Five um, years you've been working on it. Yeah. yeah, that would answer a lot. Of your, that film will answer a lot of your questions, actually. <laughs> When's it coming out? <laughs> Uh, it could so, have saved a lot of time for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll never get interviewed again once that film's done. When is it coming out? Uh, sometime this year. We're just sort of negotiating um, uh, a deal with somebody at the moment. Hopefully, that's exciting. Is that and is that? Um, I meant to ask actually, but our time kind of drifted away. We're talk, talking about the 1990s too much. But what have you been? What What have you been doing um, since then? Uh, when When did you quit the band? Uh, I uh, about 2005, I think. Then I set up a production company, Dante Films. Uh, I made a couple of documentaries. Uh, uh, one about uh, going to China with Sham 69, a punk band. And then I made one about the Levelers, who were a Brighton-based band. And then I spent the last five years making this Chumbawamba documentary. But at the same time, about five years ago, I got a band together called Interrobang. And I was doing that and we put out an album. And I do a one, I do a one-man show sort of thing called the Existence, Existential Angst of Dunstan Bruce. As well, this is sort of like the main outlets. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry, that that wasn't in the spirit of the quick try, and I'm, I apologise. I, I preferred I preferred that than to, the, to an actor. <laughs> well, thank you for your honesty. Uh, what What's your best anecdote? This isn't really a quick fire either. Best anecdote could be. Anecdote. Oh, I'm useless. I'm useless at remembering stuff like that. A terrible memory. My my memory is absolutely shot. And I Who's think the most famous person? Too many drugs in the nineties, so it serves <laughs> me right. Who's the most famous person you've had a conversation with? And I suppose would be a. Uh, well, I would say Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. We yeah. met her on the Barbara Walters show in the in the America. She was talking about Dollywood. But, um, did um, Did she like your music? I've absolutely no idea. We were all absolutely starstruck. <laughs> we were. It was like one of them moments. I, I remember once. I, I mean, my absolute hero is Patty Smith, as it happens. And I remember once she was playing in Brighton. She came out of a hotel at the same time as I was walking past, and I got to that point where I thought I could talk to her. I could actually talk to her now, and I didn't. I decided not to because I just thought all I'm going to do is go. I love you. <laughs> you know, then, I mean, she must get told that all the time wherever she goes. I just thought, no, it's best not to, best not to do that. Mm. So, do you ever I get? Do, does anyone ever recognise you on the street now? Yeah, occasionally, yeah, occasionally it happens. Yeah, a lot of the time. Actually, what happens now is people go, "You look really familiar. <laughs> you look really familiar. I'm sure I've seen you somewhere." Yeah, what do you say? I don't know. Just around here. Just around here a lot. I don't know. Yeah. But when the film, I suppose, if the film comes out and it gets proper distribution and that, then that or that that might sort of start up again, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I don't mind it though. I really don't mind it. Some people don't like that sort of thing. I don't mind it at all. I sort of quite enjoy it. Um, because I've done it to people, and you, say, you know. Well, although I haven't done it to Patty Smith, I've done it to you know. I've done it when you know in the past. And you remember those sort of memories, you know, about who was nice to you. When you were young and that, I remember going to see the Buzzcocks in the 70s and I had, I'd bought a Buzzcocks t-shirt and they were sweating. I'd ruined the t-shirt. 
And Pete Shelley was at the door of the venue on the way out. And I was like, I've ruined my T-shirt. I just bought this today. And he went and got me a new one, you know, and he swapped it immediately. And I always remembered that, you know, just like, what a lovely bloke. He just mm. like sorted out a new, t- a new T-shirt for me. And I suppose that's how, uh, that's sort of like how you, how you like to be remembered, isn't it? That, that by doing, uh, you know, charitable or lovely things for people. Um, yeah. As a philosophy, uh, I've always we have uh, one more question. What, what is your favourite possession? I wish I could. Show, I wish I could just add something at hand in a big hand in like, like that. I don't know. Um, Will I feel like you're really still having me mind? Is it's good enough? We'll uh, rate these quick questions did. today, and I think he really stitched me up because obviously we're talking to someone who's famously very politically active on the left of centre, and the ones I had were Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. Favorite business and favorite possession. I've let you ask favorite possession. I'll say this: it's not. I'll say this: having fun with Elvis on stage. Oh, cool! Uh-huh. It's just an album of him just talking between songs. Hmm. Great, great answer. Thank you very much, Thompson. <laughs> uh, I think that that's everything we wanted to ask. Unless you've got any more, um, any more uh, good, good quick fire questions then we should ask a few more basic ones shouldn't we since you since you dislike tea or coffee so much uh, <laughs> it was just a realization that it was one of those things and you pledged never to do one and we tricked you into it I didn't <laughs> it at the beginning. 